The next chapter with Prim Saripapat is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, it's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. This week's guest is former UCLA and NFL tight end and ESPN college football analyst, Charles Arbuckle. So Seabuck and I worked together for a number of years during our time at ESPN while working on First Take College Football. And whether it was before, during, or after our shows, we often talk about things other than sports, including his family, his children, thinking about grad school, his MBA, also his 20-something years of work in the biopharmaceutical industry. And we always had something to talk about beyond sports. And another thing I knew about his journey is also how tough it was for him to leave the game of football, something that's been a part of his life since he was a little kid growing up in Texas. And what stands out to me from this conversation is the dark moments he experienced shortly after he retired from the NFL in his late 20s and wondering what he's going to do with his life and questioning his existence without football and without his athletic identity. I certainly think this conversation extends beyond sport because anytime we lose an identity and don't really know what's next for us and what our purpose is in life, it can bring up a lot of existential questions and also just a lot of confusion and dark feelings. And I think that's something most people will struggle with at some point in their lives. But Seabuck was able to find his way out of it. And so I hope you're able to learn something from his journey and from today's conversation. So without further ado, here's Charles Arbuckle. It's so great to have you on. You know, we we got the opportunity to chat and you came on the show, but I wanted to bring you back because so much has happened over the past several years. I think the last time we did the first interview was back in 2019. Since then, we had the pandemic. We got stuck in our homes. We had the quarantine. You've had some movement in your professional life. You're playing golf. Um, But outside of the golf realm. Can you just tell everybody in your own words a little bit, just a little background about yourself and also what you do today? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been in the pharma or healthcare space for 20 plus years. I mean, when I, when I finished playing ball, um, you know, I played in college, played in the pros for about five years. And when I finished, I started doing some things to set myself up so I could get into pharmaceutical sales. So I started out as a sales rep for years. And then uh, the last 12 or 13 years, I've probably been in management at some capacity. And so while doing all of that, I've still kind of maintained an opportunity to do some broadcasting. And that's how we met. You know, it was, uh, you know, doing some games first and then starting to do a lot of studio shows. Uh, so I, I like that part because it keeps me close to the game. And, you know, probably in what, 2017, I, I got the wild idea of saying, hey, you know, maybe I should go back to grad school, <laughs> which which I'm doing and get my MBA. And I'm almost finished, which is great because I need to I need to complete that and get get done with it. But, you know, um, with that said, it's just given me an opportunity to, you know, uh, expand my thought process, how I work 
why I do some of the things in business, why business works the way it does. And then it's also helped me um, just, you know, be a better analyst of things and look, looking objectively and analytically at how things work. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I am now. Just, uh, and, and I, I've always kind of played golf, but I've started here lately to do it again, just cause I have, a you know, I don't have the free time, but I'm starting to figure out if I don't start learning now, uh, <laughs> it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. So yeah, that's where I am. Well, in addition to working on your golf game, you obviously have a lot going on. You know, mm-hmm. you and I were talking the other day and we've, we catch up from time to time, you know, you're juggling dad life, you're juggling husband life, you're juggling, um, you know, school life. You joked around mm-hmm. you're on the, what do you call it? Like the 10 year plan. But nonetheless, <laughs> I mean, juggling class with like full time, yeah. you're, you're working full time. You're also, you know, co- heading into the college football season. You're going to be traveling all over the place, right? Yeah, for ESPN. Yeah. So that's that's a lot of things on your plate. Have you always been that way? Um, yeah, pretty I mean I have. I think the one thing that's been good about calling games is only on the weekend. Now you have to prep mm-hmm. during the week and that means but for me for work, I travel for work usually Monday through Thursday or Monday, you know, Tuesday, Thursday. But that's you know that's fine because it I know how to do that now. I, I understand it. And with school I'm almost finished. It's a 10, you know, our, our uh, terms run 10 weeks. So that's been actually pretty good because you, as much mm. as it's compiled, it's still certain things you have to get done, like the papers and certain things. And I'm out of the accounting classes. Now, if I had any more accounting classes, <laughs> I would be, you know, <laughs> want to kill myself. But I, yeah, I can write a pa- I can write a paper all day long. So that part is easy because I'm at that back end. I'm just taking a, a few electives. I'm literally going to be finished. I think I have two classes. So, oh, I, wow. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, awesome. I, I, yeah, but I just, I finally had to just say, okay, let's, let's finish this. I did have the 10 year plan initially. And then I just said, no, let's, let's hunker down and kind of get this thing done. So I can be done with this and say, I have it. I've completed it. Right. But, um, I've always kind of figured out how to, you know, uh, a lot for time. Sometimes it can get a little hairy, but for the most part, it's it's pretty. I'm I'm pretty good about scheduling and not letting the broadcasting or school mm-hmm. interfere with work. You know, just how you just have to figure out how to do that and how to manage it. Yeah, you've been you've always. That's the one thing that always fascinated um, me about you, and I think also why we became such good friends. I was like, gosh, this guy is so well rounded, and you do so many things. And I think a lot of mm-hmm. times in our in sports media and broadcasting. You know, I think athletes do a lot of things, but it's easy yeah. to get hyper-focused. It's easy to get sucked into the sports broadcasting space. Yeah. There's this like, there's this urge to want more. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's being in the limelight, getting those opportunities, getting that feedback, wanting more shows, wanting more opportunities. But you've always kind of seemed to really maintain this balanced sense of motivation in all these different realms are you shaking your head because oh, is, that, yeah, off I'm the, is head. that off the mark or you no, think that- you're, you're on the mark but i think part of it is because if you're not given or you know like if you don't get selected at a certain point like this mm-hmm. broadcasting thing is like sports to me it i've always told people you know well why aren't you doing this, this high profile game or I said, because sometimes you have to have people to choose you to do that. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that anybody that they choose isn't good, but sometimes when you get people in those spots, 
they keep them there or they stay there and there's not a whole lot of room to move people out. So what I've learned a few years ago when I did start doing a lot more and said, hey, maybe this is the time to focus on, you know, highlight, you know, becoming a broadcaster full time and doing that. I had, you know, I had some conversations with a few I got mentors and they were like, look, this is a great industry. But I'll just be honest and cautious because there are certain things that are out of your control. Be the best that you can be when you show up, but there's still going to be the next shiny penny or somebody that they have in front of you. And that may not change. And, that, and you know, it, it wasn't easy to hear that, but it was good advice as you start getting a little bit older and they start mm-hmm. having younger people that can come in. So it's just like this week at the college football seminar. It's great to go in a room full of guys that I know I can do as good a job of as they can. But I don't sit around anymore and say, probably like my younger self, let me be competitive with him and him. No, I'm going to be the best that I can. Mm-hmm. And I think, I'm not, I don't know if I'm well-rounded. I've just matured and learned, okay, I'm going to do the best thing I can in this lane right here. And if people recognize it, I'm going to keep getting opportunities. If they don't, okay. That means I have to be prepared to do other things as well. And I think that's almost by necessity has been that way for me. It's so interesting. The way you described the interaction and relationship with an experience in sports broadcasting kind of reminds some of the descriptors that you use reminds me of the transition out of sport of just, you know, do the best that you can and not Mm. always, of course, there's that competitive element where we have to compete with our peers and and other athletes. Obviously there's, there's only so many spots in whatever game that we're playing, but ultimately, ultimately it becomes a battle against ourselves. And so I'm curious about, you said maturity. So what did you learn in leaving football that you now apply to how you, how, how you just deal with various obstacles and transitions today? Uh, I think resiliency. I mean, you know, that's not an easy transition. Uh, I've talked to guys and we were talking about it this past week. I mean, whether you play 14 years in the league or 20 years or two, two games, there's something about that rush of running out of the tunnel, being in the locker room, the opportunity to compete every single day with and against guys. And when you leave it, there's nothing else that's going to replace it. That's like when you said earlier, what replaced that? I can go play, I can go pay, pick up softball. I can go play uh, basketball with the guys at the Y. But it's never going to be the same level of competition as blocking Cornelius Bennett or Bruce Smith one week and then the next week Andre Tippett or, you know, Lawrence Taylor. There's nothing that you're going to ever find that replaces that. And that's why I think so many of us struggle there's a kindred spirit when you are around guys that have played or women like you or men that have played at a high level because you know what that looks like and what it feels like. But the hardest part for all of us is you also know the ones that struggle and you know your struggle when you leave the game or when you walk away from it or when they're, when you're, cho- when you're not chosen anymore, <laughs> you're not the kid on the, mm-hmm. on the, on the corner that gets picked anymore. It, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot goes into that, uh, mentality. And that's why guys, I think, struggle with this so much. What was your experience like? And you and I have talked a little bit about it and you've touched yeah. on it, but what were, what were your struggles like? Because I think, and that's not to imply that you did struggle, but I think everybody, I think most athletes, maybe not all, yeah. but I would say 99.9% have some sort of issue in leading sport. So what were your struggles? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's funny. Every guy you talk to, no matter how smooth the transition was, whether they become a high-level executive for a company or you know they, they've been able to work in corporate America for years, the hardest part for me was you know, figuring out, okay, that identity that I have, I have to, I have to lose it. I can't, I can't let it immerse me. I can't let it suffocate me. I can't let it almost take, want me to take my life. And I think, you know, God, I've talked to so many guys that I thought, Hey man, they had it together. They were in the same boat, but they were struggling in a silo because as a ball player or athlete, you're taught, okay, you just work through it. You'll work yourself out of it. But, you know, the good thing for me was, you know, we had a really strong NFL PA association in Indy. Um, and then also just um, my faith, being able to go to, you know, my former uh, chaplain and, and really talk through things about what, what that was like. Because while you think you're the only one, they've dealt with that with other guys that have come through the program or left. And so I think that was those are the things that helped me. There were there was some dark times where I felt like, hey, you know, why am I here? Why do I need to be here? And I can remember laying on my office floor one day thinking, you know, do I really wanna do I really wanna keep going at life like this? You know, has this been all that life's given given me? But I had a young son, you know, I had a wife, uh, and then in the future a daughter. So I I think it was you know, I'm glad I was able to get the help and support to understand that, you know, you don't that your life isn't over when you're done with the field. And for a while, I would kind of let people know I played, but I want, I was determined more to say, no, I, I didn't play ball. You know, I try to yeah. kind of go away from it so you could uh, show people that you had other attributes and skills. That that last part that you just mentioned about not sharing with people that you played ball, mm-hmm. you know, it, as you know, Seabuck, this is like some of the, research that I'm doing. And it's something that I didn't really think about, but there is a lot of research to show that societal pressure disallows or does not allow athletes, especially male athletes, to move on from sport Mm -hmm. because you're walking down the street and it's like, oh my God, see Buck, what's going, you know, yeah. UCLA, like I remember you. And there yeah. are those moments, or if you're in an interview and they look at your resume, and it's like, oh wow, you know, played in the NFL for you know a number mm-hmm. of years. And that becomes the centerpiece and the center point of your interview. And you don't really talk about anything else. So there's that that societal pressure that like shapes your experience and it makes yeah. it harder to kind of leave sport. Now, you also mentioned about being in your office, ha- experiencing some dark moments. And this is part where mm-hmm. I want to kind of like slow down the conversation because I think athletes listening to this, it's so easy to skip over those moments. And so I just kind of want to like slow down and, and talk about that. But can you share maybe one or can you remember a dark moment, a lowest point yeah. where you really hit rock bottom? And you're like, I just, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Yeah, I, I think it was just, like I said, just some contemplation of do I really want to continue to, to live like this or live with a, a part of not having the identity? You know, how do I how do I let that go? How do I, you know, and it, it wasn't just you end up on the floor in your office or sitting there contemplating. It, it's moments that lead up to it. It's just 
you know, just uh, rejection maybe for you not getting a job that you thought you were qualified for, you know, just the things I think it was, as I look back, it might've been the rejection on top of rejection on top of rejection of, Hey, he's not qualified for this, but we love him because he's a former athlete. And when you don't get hired or you, you know, your business deals aren't going the way you want to, it's a lot of numbers. There was a couple of, it was a number of different things. I don't think it was just one, but in that moment, I had, I started thinking, okay, no, let's, let's slow this down a little bit. Let's think about all the times you had rejection in sports and how you were able to come back. And that's why I said, make, making sure I reached out to people because when I went into a group of guys similar to me and talking to them one-on-one or in a group, those were things that were shared or, you know, going to the chaplain and then also eventually going to, you know, seek out help just to say, help me through this because I know, you know, my mind is playing a, a, a video and a, a dialogue that I know is not true, but how do I kind of, uh, you know, peel that back and, and mm-hmm. focus on the things that are, that are a positive and the things that I know in life have been really good for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How old, how old were you when yeah, think, this, yeah. Go, go ahead. This, yeah. How old were you when this happened? 95, 96. So, you know, I, I my last year was 95. So it had to be around ni- 1996 before I started really started doing broadcasting. I mean, I was doing local things in the area uh, and before I kind of had my place, because I was still thinking, do I want to play football? But it's funny. I knew when I was going to stop playing and I tell the story all the time. I was on the bus. I had a workout with the, I got released by the Colts during the season, but I got a workout or I got a call about a workout in the in Carolinas. Because uh, one of the former coaches was here, I was there in the off season, and it was me and Andre Reed, and you know they would work out, and the workout I thought went well, but I was on the bus, and they, you know, Bojangles is a big sponsor, and I think the owner owned Bojangles, so they do some a Bojangles box of chicken, and I opened the chicken, and I'm like, I'm not gonna do this anymore. Uh, I think I'm done with this. I think I'm, I think I'm good. And it wasn't a Bojangles. The chicken was actually pretty good. But I told Andre, I told Dre Reed, I said, man, I can't do this anymore. I, I think it's time for me to move on. He ended up playing 14, 15 years, probably Hall wow. of Famer. But it was just in that moment, I was like, I, I, my body, you know, I was, I wasn't, I could, it was hard to get up to do that every single game yet alone think about going through another year that crap <laughs> i just said hey i'm done i retired that, after that you know after talking to dozens of athletes it is quite funny when uh, there's a lot of athletes that remember the moment when mm-hmm. they were just done and for so. those that just get fatigued like they just wake up one morning and they're training or mm-hmm. they're at training camp or they're doing PT and it's like, do I want to do this anymore? I'm just yeah. tired. So, but that moment for you was on the bus eating Bojangles. Yeah, eating Bojangles. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> I'll, still, I'll still go by and get a breakfast sandwich occasionally just to reminisce. But I knew, like, I have had so many knee injuries leading up to that. And in spite of being, a, being like one and a half leg strong, I still made it to the league. So I had to, I said, okay, this is getting tough. This is getting tough just to go to camp every year, sign a waiver to say like, if your knee is not 
if you don't pass the physical because of your knee, we'll cut you. I had to do that every year after my first year in the league. So when you start getting it, when you know that, like, and, and eventually that knee became a knee replacement. So, mm-hmm. hey, you, you know it's going to get there. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. I, I, my body was just like, as much as you love this game, that game ain't going to love you the same way back. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's so powerful. So around that time, mm-hmm. you were about 28 years old, roughly, yeah. in your late 20s. 27. Yeah, 27. Okay, 28. 27, mm-hmm. 28. And what did you do after that bus ride? Did you end up doing any more workouts or you that was the last day? That was it. I, I stopped. I mean, I kept working out, but I didn't do any more workouts for teams. And then I, I kind of started making the transition. I got a call from the, the folks at the Colts to say, hey, we have some opportunities. Would you like to do some preseason television? Which I said, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, and I was already doing some post-game radio stuff with them occasionally. And I, I ramped that up. Uh, you know, I was working my pharma job in sales, which was a perfect fit for uh sports because you know i didn't have to go into an office i was i was uh well i was transitioning into that field i was still in sales but in another industry so yeah it gave it gave me a chance to kind of cut my teeth on high school football uh local college football i mean you know wabash and depaul in indiana is a really big uh deep three game and then i started getting opportunities with espn regional at the time to do uh, mid-American conference games. And I think that's what really helped me because I started to get get chances to go meet with coaches again. A lot of them have been coaching when I was playing, so I knew those guys and then started to do occasionally doing some NFL games when, uh, say, uh, the, the, the color analyst for the Colts couldn't make it, I could step in. So I got a chance to get back around football, which was probably good for me. It made me not... Um, think like some guys, I hate this game, <laughs> you mm. know, uh, but I, I always, I, I, even, even when times weren't great, I still liked the game. Uh, I, I didn't have that sense of, I hate this game and it, you know, treated me wrong because I can, I can never say that. Uh, but yeah, that, that's kind of what I started doing and just, you know, just rebuilding a, a, a career. So in many ways, your relationship with football was not damaged as you mentioned, because some some athletes, some NFL players walk away from the game and they end up hating the game, not necessarily yeah. because of football itself, but I think the business side of it, I think it, it yeah. sours their experience. So you walked away still having a, a relatively positive ex- relationship with football. So when you were having that dark moment and you were questioning what was next for you, and it almost sounds like you were even were you thinking about ending your life or was it just a question of what you were going to do with your life? If I had put that thought in my mind, I could have at that time. I don't, I I can't say, yeah, I was going to do this, but there were thoughts of should I? So I didn't, I didn't go there luckily, but I think you, you said it best. The game, I didn't love the politics and the business side of the game. I never liked that. And that's, that's the worst part of the NFL. But the part that you miss the most is the camaraderie with the guys, which I think I was able to get through uh, those those meetings and the retired players getting back together, doing different functions, because it almost became your locker room. You know, just like a, a locker room 2.0 when you're not there anymore, but, but you at least have a group of guys when you get together 
once or twice a month to do functions that you, and then started doing the golf tournaments and different things where you'd be around people where you, you can't say, I hate this game because the reason you're there yeah. <laughs> is because the game they got you there. But, but the love, but, but that part was great. I mean, the part that you hate the most and I hate the most is the business side and some of the cutthroat nature of the game. That's just, that's just the reality. So, uh, you know, yeah, the business side of it very much sours the the experience, regardless of what sport you're in. I think it's that transactional nature that that really um, leaves a bad taste in a lot of players' mouths. I think really, mostly speaking about revenue generating sports, I think that's where, you know, like football, the football and basketball and, you know, maybe baseball, soccer as well. But, well, and one point to that, Prim, I think that's the one thing we have to be cognizant of, and I've heard it heard it this week at our college football seminars, there's been so much talk about money, money, money and NIL and all of this. But there was one person that spoke and they said, Hey, we need to think about, you know, the players and the, the, you know, the participants, because as of late, we've had a lot of college age kids and even some high school kids that have done something and committed suicide. have had some, you know, mental break, missed mental issues around this. And I, when he said that, he said it, but I was still thinking, we don't say that enough. Not when we are now going to have kids that have to fly across country. It becomes like you're, you're in a job. And I hope that colleges will continue to get, because we didn't have those support systems as much growing up. I know I didn't, not when I was in school. I mean, I was lucky to meet Dr. Parham because I was on the West Coast where things were moving a lot quicker. Um, and probably another reason why I didn't sour to the game uh, because of relationships like that. But I mm. think we really need we really need to look at that because there are a lot of kids suffering, or young adults suffering more so than we know, and they probably do it in silence. And, you know, I hope programs, I hope all these programs with this money that they're talking about, they, they put enough back around mental health. Yeah, I think that's such an important conversation. And I'm glad you brought it up because I do want to talk about that. It's funny, I was I was just on uh the hopefully this isn't too much of a di- digression, but it, you know, yeah. something I'm obviously really passionate about, but you know, I had a conversation, a pod I was on a podcast that was connected with the NCAA. And the conversation mm-hmm. about student athlete mental health was the the emphasis, but there was some caution about wanting to talk about the suicidality and the recent incidents because yeah. there was a concern of not just, I think, maybe a little bit of liability, but I think mm-hmm. there was they were worried about this contagion effect. And honestly, this is this is beyond my training. I don't yeah. I don't have the answers to that, but it is my personal opinion that I've been a part of that generation that didn't talk about it and that didn't work. So (laughs) I am less worried about the contagion effect in that if we are talking about suicide, you know, is that going to prompt somebody else to think about it? I mean, it's already out there. So I would rather talk about it and, and talk about the options and resources. And so listen, like in, in, in full disclosure, I have had, suicidal ideations before I, they oh. were passive in the sense of similar to uh similar to yours where it's just a fleeting thought there's no mm-hmm. act there's no plan of intent there's no plan to act on it so mm-hmm. and those i will just say 
that having those passive thoughts uh, of questioning what your purpose is, what you're going to do next in life, what is the meaning, what's the meaning of you being here? Um, those things are normal during yeah. stressful moments. And that's something that I learned when I, during my clinical training this year, you know, mm-hmm. and, and having to work with uh, having my first set of clients and my supervisor mentioned like, hey, this is important to let people know, like, this is actually normal during periods of stress. Mm-hmm. But if it gets to the point where it's like, okay, you know, there was an act, there was intent, there was a plan, yeah. you know? And so, so in that moment, when you were questioning my identity, what I was going to do, do you remember just like the general feeling of you know, what were you feeling in that moment? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think what I, what I remember is just, you know, saying, God, what, why, why am I feeling this way? I, I remember asking that question and then, and I, I it was almost like a, a voice that said, get up, man, you're okay. And, and I remember it was, it was almost one of those, like, you're going to be fine. It's going to be struggles, but you're going to be fine. It was, a, it was a calm. It wasn't like you said. I didn't have a plan of I'm going to go and do X, Y, or Z, but it was just a, a thought of how do I, how do I keep going if I don't feel like I'm whole, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm, like I'm missing something. And and I think that's the part that to your point, so many young, well, no, yeah, I mean, not just young, but I think anybody uh, that has played at a high level or that has had some, some struggles with pressure or anxiety or whatever you want to call it, have, you know, I mean, you, you can, you, you can sense that. And, you know, and I think, I think to your point, we were a generation even a little bit before you where now you got to be tough. You can't, you know, you can't let anybody see that. You can't let, you know, you can't be vulnerable. Well, I think that, that was really not the way to go. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think if people say, well, you shouldn't talk about it. If I can, help just one person or two people, then that's better. If I can help even more, I'd like to, but there's a lot of folks that struggle with that. And when you talk to them or when you get them to open up, they'll tell you, man, I was struggling with this. So this was tough for me. Or, and, and you want to make sure they understand, Hey, look, if you need somebody just call, because we've all had that no matter mm-hmm. how much, uh, how many accolades you have or how many, all American teams you made, how many trophies you won, how many championships, those things will not make you whole when that, when you get to that point where you're feeling like there's nothing else or nobody else that understands you. And I'm, and I'm not qualified to, to be an expert on it at all. I can just tell you how I would, you know, counsel somebody if they come to me and I have had young players as they transition out that will open up and say, okay, look, Let's, let's get you in this direction. Do you know what you want to do? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, that's all I know how to do. I think it's so important. I appreciate you just sharing your story and talking about it mm-hmm. because I think the the importance of that is that maybe there is somebody out there, a sports parent, a coach, an athlete, mm-hmm. whoever, even if it's a non-sport or non-athlete out there, yeah. that's like, wow, Charles and Prim felt mm-hmm. this way. 
because I think it's so easy when we're down and out to feel like this is just our experience and nobody else is feeling that this way. And when you're down, it's really hard to reach out. It's really Mm. right. Cause it's hard to muster up that energy when Mm. you feel like the entire world is on your shoulders. So, you know, talking about it, I think hopefully validates anybody else that's, that's talking about it. And, you know, when you, you mentioned when sport wasn't a part of your life, you didn't feel whole. It's like something is missing and it Mm. makes sense because you lost this part of you that has been a part of your whole life really up until that point. And you were asking why, like in that moment, you were asking, why do I feel this way? Mm -hmm. And so kind of finding the answer to that, how do you think your childhood contributed to how you felt in that moment in the sense of growing up, growing up in Beaumont, Texas, where football was everything, you know, football capital of the world. How do you think your childhood (laughs) contributed to that? Yeah. So it's interesting. I was born in Beaumont, grew up in Houston, but spent a lot of time in Beaumont in the, in the summers. And, you know, that that at one point in time, that was the golden triangle, you know, uh, orange, Port Arthur and, and Beaumont, not a whole lot there, refinery town, rice, town, you know, like uh, rice fields, which was interesting because after the Vietnam War, there were a lot of Vietnam refugees that migrated to that area. Um, And it's funny, one of my, I mean, just kind of made me think about it. One of my uh, buddies down the street, his mom was Vietnamese and his dad was black. And she could make some of the best damn Vietnamese gumbo there was because it was spicy, you know, Orlando, it was great. But but what That's you had awesome. was a yeah you had a melting pot. Now it was still very segregated uh, at the time when I was growing up. You know, whites on one side of town and blacks on on one, and that was Texas in general. But when you move to Houston, it's a little bit more open, more diverse. Still problems because you think about the times in the seventies and eighties. But growing up, if you played ball, you were the the, the, the person. You know, whether it was middle school, whether it was high school, when you became a star, you were a star. I mean, it was weird, especially in football. I mean, you just, it was something about wanting to play and be, uh, you know, at first for me, it was baseball because I love baseball. But then as I started getting bigger and faster and stronger, uh, football, that became my identity. And I think I had to think about that. It had been my identity for so long that when I felt like it was taken from me, how would I replace it? You know, I think that's, that's the part. And, 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 and instead of saying replace it, how do I supplement it and move on and like just kind of put it on the shelf because I can't do it anymore uh, at that time, but I can still, it's still going to be a part of me, but how do I add to it? You know, how do I do different things? So I don't feel like it's completely over. Yeah. Yeah. So you said it's been such a huge part of your life, if not the majority, mm-hmm. at least up until you were 27, 28 years old. So when did, what are your first memories of, of football entering your life? Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, it was just watching Oilers games or playing Pop Warner football. You know, we had, it's funny, uh, we had some really good coaches that coached us, but a lot of the guys that played in my Pop Warner team one was O.J. Brigance, who was a year behind me. And O.J., um, you know, played a long time in the league. Now he has ALS, but he's been battling that. 
Uh, he's a, he was, still works with the Baltimore Ravens, a great inspirational story. But OJ was one of our, one of my teammates, Reggie Moore, who I played college ball with uh, at UCLA, played in the league for a few years. Lance Blanks was a uh, major basketball player for, in Texas and ended up playing at, at, uh, in Detroit for a while in the NBA. Um, Ivan Jones played college basketball, and I think he played overseas. Will McClay, who's now an executive with the Dallas Cowboys, he was on the team. His dad was a coach. We had Sid Blanks. I mean, we had some – when I think about it, and just in that Pop Warner, that, that, that team there, we probably had six or seven guys that played college or pro basketball or football. So it was – you know, you competing early on. I think that's what I remember. I learned how to compete because if you weren't – if the only way you were going to get on the field, even as a youngster, you had to be able to compete. And that, that's what I remember about – football and just any sport that I play. We have some really good players in the area that I grew up in. I mean, Andre Ware and I were talking about that the other day. You know, Dre grew up in League City or Dickinson, you know, ended up winning the Heisman Trophy at U of H. But in the summers, we would come back, Reggie and I would go over to U of H and work out with him. And then the Oilers guys would be out there working out with huh. us. So, I mean, yeah, you, you, you learn how to compete at a pretty early age. Uh, and if you're catching passes from Dre, who's a future, you know, high round draft pick and Hollow Heisman Trophy winner. And then sometimes you'd even see Warren Moon out there. So it, it, wow. it, it was, yeah, it, it was a, a spirit of competition, but it also taught you, man, you got to be ready. <laughs> you have to be ready. Wow. Yeah. I mean, your childhood is crazy unique. Uh, you went to Willow Ridge High School, which was in Houston, yeah. right? And so. And yeah. when you were there in the 80s, I mean, it was known for its football program and producing a number of NFL talents, including yourself, right? Because OJ yeah. was there, Alan Aldridge. Uh, yeah, Alan Aldridge, Eric England behind me, but Thurman Thomas, um, you know, who's in the Hall of Fame now, was older. Thurman and I didn't play football together, interestingly enough. We played basketball. Um, huh. I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't even make the, the varsity football team until I was a junior. It was so, so deep. <laughs> wow wait you so you didn't make the varsity football team until you were a junior i did so i, I hear that junior. right yeah so i was a junior That's yeah insane. I, so I, I moved away my mom moved to st louis for a couple of years in middle school so i really started focusing on basketball and baseball and when i came back um i was able to play baseball you know varsity baseball early and basketball but our football team was so doggone good um, I could have played on the varsity, but I wasn't going to play. I was like, no, nah, let me go, you know, let me go somewhere. And I had a, a really good coach, um, JV coach, Belton Narcisse, who probably should have been our head coach when the other coach left. But he said, look, if you come play for me, I'll really work with you and you'll get a lot of chances to play. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't play varsity till my junior year, but the, the sophomore year on, on the JV probably did me better because of that uh. experience. I got the chance to play. I learned. And then, you know, Thurman and I played basketball together because I was more of a basketball guy when I first, you know, and I was thinking I didn't keep growing. <laughs> you know, I thought I was going to be about <laughs> six, 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 seven, and I, I stopped. So that, that was a perfect position for a tight end. 
That's great. Well, you know, I would imagine that every athlete has one of those stories. I mean, Michael Jordan got passed up, you know, for making the varsity team in high school. I just had uh, Lindsay Harding, former Duke and former number one overall pick. She got passed up for the Nike camp and McDonald's All-American game. And look what she ended up doing. So, I mean, those those stories are are just in the dozens and hundreds and thousands, you know. Talking about your childhood, the conversation about your experience and and race and how that intersected with your athletic journey. So here mm-hmm. you are in Texas. And even though it was a bit more diverse in Houston, but nonetheless, it was during the 60s and 70s and 80s, a period where it was very segregated and also continues yeah. to be honestly segregated mm-hmm. in Texas. So did you feel as though being a football player and being a really good athlete, were you able to hop some of those hop or, or hurdle or chip away at those barriers that existed because of your race being a black child? Yeah. I think you, you feel like it, you can until it confronts you, you know, like yeah, there, there's, there's always times that you think, okay, just, just because it's not in my face, I don't doesn't mean I don't know it's there. But I don't go looking for it, right? I never did. But you, you knew. Even you know, I can remember in high school we were playing a team, and you know, at their place, and you know, their guys were just throwing end bombs all over the place on the field first, and wow. you know, so. But then the stands started doing it. So, um, you know. I'm pretty calm, cool, and collected. But at a certain point, I go to first base and I can hear it because that's on their side. And and I was I was going to go in their dugout and get a bat and go in the stands. <laughs> My coach had to come get me and say, "Hey, look, you know, we, we'll beat them on the field," which we end up doing. Um, and the, the whole time, you know, I'm thinking, "Hey, their coach is going to say something to them and his fans to tell them to back off." It didn't happen. Nonetheless, I get back to school and I get a. Uh, a letter or something from our athletic director who was a white guy. And, and we always kind of felt like we were the eye guys out because Willow Ridge was a predominantly black school. We had some, um, you know, folks, some uh, Hispanics, uh, a few white kids, but it was mainly a black school. The other schools in the district were more white. And he sent me something and said, you know, I, I need you to come in and, and see him. So when I went in, I had one of my coaches with me because I was like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen here. He wanted me to apologize to the the school and the fans for my behavior. And I said, no, I'm not going to apologize for that because I was there. Yeah. And coach understands what happened. Uh, but if you want to suspend me or do something like that, I'll, you can go ahead on and do that. But I'm not apologizing for what, but defending myself or my team. And luckily it didn't get to that. Uh, but it just it made me think you always have to speak up for who you are, or what you are. I don't go looking for it. But if it comes, find me. I have no problem dealing with it. Wow. Just hearing that, that's just that's really it's frustrating. It's angry. Mm-hmm. I must have been hurtful, obviously. Uh, what do you think your childhood would have been like growing up in Texas without sports? Uh you know, I think it still would have been good because I had such a, a, a close-knit family. Um, just, you know, that that's the one thing, too, that I think about having all my family. You know, my dad had this 10, on his side, 10 brothers and sisters, and my mom 
six of them all together. So a pretty nice extended family, even though I'm only child. So I think even without sports, I would have had the luxury of having a lot of family and growing up with, you know, in a, in, in a cool time with with relatives that were, you know, you could spend time with. They would, you know, treat you really well. And then I, I think football only enhanced it because I got a chance to meet other people and, and get teammates that, you know, you, you know and uh, bond with for life. I think that was the, the one thing that, you know, playing sports helped with. So you really think that your your general experience, your general childhood experience would have been the same. But what about you as a person and where you are today? Mm-hmm. How do you think you would how how do you think you would be uh different, maybe had you not yeah. been an athlete? You know, it made me I got to see things earlier. I got to travel more earlier as an athlete, get out of get out of just, you know, that space, get to travel and, you know, go do things that maybe I wouldn't have. Um, if I didn't leave and go to uh, UCLA from the state of Texas. I don't know. I, I think it, it opened doors that maybe would have opened later. But I, I got a chance to see things at an early age. You know, at 17, I'm going off to college in Los Angeles. Although I had been there before because, you know, the, here, here's the other thing that's great about growing up in the South is also you have extended family in Louisiana, from Louisiana and Texas that go to Los Angeles or California because of the migration of African-American folks that want to get out of the South, whether it was Florida up to New York. But I had a big contingent of family in uh, Northern California and Southern California. So I had already been wow. out there growing up. So when people oh. say, well, what made you want to go to L.A.? I said, I'd go out there for a couple of summers and go hang out with my cousins and relatives in California at, at, you know, in middle school. So I got a chance to see California. I'm like, man, this is a pretty cool place. If I could ever come back here, I would. And I ended up going to school out there. So, yeah, I think, I think just from a historical perspective, I got to see things earlier. So mm-hmm. it made me open to, to the world and understanding, you know, there's, there's, there's places outside of where you, where you actually are, where you grow up, I think is what taught me. Yeah, that's interesting to hear that you you think that you just experience things earlier. I often kind of reflect on uh, my experience with tennis, and sometimes I kind of pose the question of of who I would be had I not pursued tennis in the way that I did in such a in such an intense manner. You know, a lot of people know that at twelve. You know, my mom and I went to the tennis academy. So my parents yeah. weren't divorced, but they they split up to help, you know, allow me to pursue my dream and in tennis. And of course I go to this tennis academy, I'm training five hours a day. So I often wonder, would I be the person that I am today? And it it helped me become much more outspoken and much more confident. I mean, when I was, when I think back to myself in Mexico, Missouri, I mean, I was, I was very gregarious and loved friends and I was very social, but I was extremely shy. I am. You know, I was a very shy. Uh, I did not have the the first word that comes to my mind is balls, but gumption. I'll use gumption mm. as a more appropriate word. But I feel like yeah. today I have so much more gumption compared to yeah. had I not been in sports. And so uh, it, that's, I, I, that's I, I, why I pose yeah. that question. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you know when you have a, a certain level of confidence uh, or the ability to know that you have a voice. I think sports gives you a voice. 
sometimes we we can go the total opposite and become egotistical with that voice, or we can say, uh, let's use it when when we need to, you know. And I, I'm kind of like you. I, I'm not a by nature. I probably was a little quieter, uh, a little more reserved. But as I got older, I wasn't afraid to you know, speak if I saw something that I didn't think was right, you know, or didn't didn't feel like it was good for me. I could say no. This is this is how I view it because sometimes people want you to say what they want you to say. And I'm like, nah, that's mm-hmm. not me. <laughs> yeah. So what do you, what did you learn from your transitional period in leaving football? What did you learn from that whole period in your late twenties? Um, I learned that, um, how to reinvent yourself and how to, you know, not think so much about what you do as who you are, but what what what's inside of you, you know, or how you how you can evolve. I think that's a big thing. I tell people there's a certain a certain evolution of things that you have to do in life, and you don't always you don't always know when you're going to have to evolve, but you have to be ready to evolve. I think is what that taught me. Mm-hmm. How long do you think that reinventing process? lasted for you it's still going on i mean i don't <laughs> think it i don't think it ever stopped yeah yeah I, I i don't know i think uh i've been cognizant enough to know that there you probably have to just kind of keep doing some self-reflection and evaluation periodically because if you don't you can, the same thing can happen to you or you can get caught in that cycle right and so, no, I, I think I'm, I, I know I consistently uh, still think, okay, what am I doing? How is this working? I, I have to constantly do that. I think it's, that's what it's taught me, how to be cognizant of things around you, but also things within yourself. Such a great answer. I, I mm-hmm. agree with everything that you just said. I think it's a mm-hmm. continuous process of constant mm-hmm self-reflection and being aware, trying to figure out where you are in life, where you want to go. And mm. I think oftentimes in today's society, especially with the younger generation, we I feel as though they feel the pressure to make a decision and to mm-hmm. kind of stick with it. But it's, I don't know if they think it's forever, but I mean, yeah. we live in a, at least from a professional standpoint, I mean, the job market is so much more volatile than it was many years ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so I think we have to, have the permission and freedom that it's one thing we have to know how to be committed to something, mm-hmm. but then also fluid. Yeah. Because we're always yeah. evolving. Well, and I think COVID taught us too, how you have to make sure mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're really flexible. You know, I think what's funny is people act like, Oh, that never happened, but it was, it was a time where we had to all kind of figure out changes and doing different things. I mean, it's kind of what made me start a podcast, just talking to people like you and other friends because we couldn't get out and we weren't able to go. And Zoom became a lot of our best friends, but it also allowed us a chance to do some self-reflection and, and introspection of things that were we doing everything that we needed to and that we need to change some of those things. Mm. Yeah. Uh, next week, I am going to visit a university and talk to their athletic staff. And the conversation is is focused on care and care for student athletes. And so with regards to just the transition and leaving sport, what do you think you would have told, what would you tell your 27 year old self 
as you were on the cusp of leaving football? What would you have wanted to know? That's a good, that's a good question and a good thought. And I think it's, it becomes now what I, what I would have told my 23 year old self or 22 as I was leaving college. Right. Because as I was leaving college, I'm thinking I'm going to be a first round pick ended up being a fifth round pick, get cut, have to work through the process of making a team and then making a team. What I would have told my 27 ish, 28 year old self is, you know, don't just say you're pre- preparing for life after football or tennis or golf, but really be vigilant about how you're doing it. Like you can go get internships and try to fool everybody else on the outside, but really be thinking how your plan B or plan C is going to look because you may play the athletes you're going to talk to. Some of them will get the opportunity to play much longer past college, but quite a few of them are, that's where it's going to end. So making sure that you're preparing for that and using that time where you had as a college athlete to leverage yourself to get into the next job that you're going to do. And really being honest, because I don't know if I I wasn't really honest with myself that it was going to ever end or when it was going to end, you know? Yeah. I think that, that was, yeah, that was the issue for me. Yeah. So be, really being honest with ourselves. And I think that's the mm-hmm. toughest part. That's the and, toughest and part. Find, and, really. and finding people around you that will force you to do that. You know, ha, don't, because I think what happens is we get escalated as athletes, get a lot of yes people, a lot of yes people to tell you, oh, you're great. You're this, you're that. But having somebody that can challenge you and say, okay, no, this is what you have to do. Or this is where, where how much time you may have or you might not have. So are you doing these things? Really having a, almost a coach for that post-transition. Post yeah. <laughs> well, that's where the next chapter Academy is going to come into play. So we, <laughs> I, can create a staff so we can help coach athletes through this and veterans and whoever else that that needs that kind of help. But Seabock, as always, it's it's been such an honor to hear your story. I appreciate you opening up and and going deep um, and and dealing with all my questions. But where can people find you this upcoming season? Yeah, I'll be on ESPN and some other platforms doing college football games. I mean, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram, all the social media channels. I'll, I'll probably be posting everything there. But yeah, I'll... Uh, first week of the season, I have uh, UNC at App State, which would be a great game up in Boone. Fun. Uh, yeah. So now I'm looking forward to it. This should be a great season. That's awesome. We'll see. Yeah. Bob. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. And um, it's an honor. I hope you can come back on the show sometime. All right. Thanks a lot. Frank. <laughs> really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For more episodes, just visit our homepage, The Next Chapter with Prim Ripipat on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And just a friendly reminder that you can also watch the full version of all these episodes on YouTube to search for the show name, The Next Chapter with Prim Ripipat. Subscribe to us, like us, give us a star rating. We really appreciate you listening and of course, supporting us. The Next Chapter with Prim Ripipat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.